Welcome to Left Out Reality-Based Independent Radio, broadcasting on WRCT 88.3 FM and podcasting on the World Wide Web at leftout.info. Left Out discusses the news from a perspective left out of the mainstream media. I'm Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. And today's program is produced by Noah. Uh, thank you uh, very much all for listening. Uh, you're always, as usual, welcome to invited the program, uh, invited to call into the program at 412-268-9728-268-WRCT. Uh, and you can also send mail to bob at leftout.info uh, during during the show, and we'll try to monitor that email. We have a little uh, email uh, email interruption today. That may not work, my, my usual pitch. Uh, so let's uh, confine ourselves to telephone calls, if you wish. So today, um, really, uh, we're very happy, uh, Danny and I are very happy to have as a guest uh, Dean Baker, who works for the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington. And I came across a book that he's written in a, an associated website uh, called The Conservative Nanny State, How the Wealthy Use the Government to Stay Rich and Get Richer. Uh, Dean Baker, welcome to Left Out. I wondered if you could uh, please, maybe we can start out with a brief summary. Uh, the thing, let me say myself, what attracted me uh, to your to your book is I um, um, is uh, uh, topics that we've come across uh, many times uh, here on Left Out uh, that we've brought up many times, in which we talk about the way in which the whole discourse about the market and the government has been distorted. Certainly, in the course of my lifetime, let's say the last twenty years, easily twenty five years since the Reagan era, uh, of a way in which things are presented to the point where, uh, as Danny and I often describe it, people uh, come to regard some of these issues like the existence of a free market and what that means as if it were uh, a natural law like the law of gravitation rather than a social construct that we uh, presumably use for for particular purposes when it suits them and not when not. Uh, and so I noticed that your book was attacking a lot of the myths about uh, the market versus uh, government and so on. So maybe you could start out with a summary and then there's a whole bunch of topics I'd like to get into with you. Um, you know, the, the, the main point I try to make here, or take issue with, is that the conventional framing of, of public debate is that, on the one hand, you have the conservatives, most often the Republicans, who are presumed to like the market. The idea is that they're about rugged individualists. You know, we're out there, you know, every person for themselves, and, you know, you do your best, and if you win, well, leave, you know, the government should leave you alone, don't tax you. If you lose, well, you know, that's the way it goes. Uh, better luck next time. You know, if you feel bad about it, give someone some charity. Um, whereas, on the other hand, you have liberals, progressives, who are saying, no, you know, we want the government to baby everyone, we want them to look out for people, and, you know, we can't trust the market. So it's portrayed as, you know, on the one hand, conservatives are about the free market, liberals want the nanny state. And I titled the book The Conservative Nanny State because what I want to say is, no, the conservatives are not about the free market. They want the government to intervene. And they want the government to intervene in ways that redistribute income upwards. So the distinction between progressives and conservatives isn't that conservatives like the market and progressives want the government. In fact, the issue is what we want the government to do. So we want the government to try to ensure that people have a decent standard of living, decent opportunity, um, ensure that there's some fairness in society. What they want the government to do is structure the rules of the game so that income gets distributed upwards. But it's not an argument about who wants the market, who wants the government. We both want the market, we both want the government. The question is, what do we think the government's doing? Good. I think uh, that's a that's a beautiful uh, beautiful summary. One of the things I would start out with, and one I think it's a rather ob an obvious point, but I'll, I'll make it anyway, which is the very idea of a free market depends on the existence of a government. I wonder if you might pick that up. Sure. There's all sorts of ways in which the government structures the market. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, I have a great time arguing with, you know, people who think of themselves as arch-libertarians, you know, get the government out yes, of the Yes, yes, that's exactly you right. Know, yeah. and, and one of my favorites is go, good, let's get rid of corporations. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I go, well, <laughs> you know, a corporation is created by the government. You know, we all could form a partnership, you know, three of us will have a partnership and we'll sell whatever and, you know, put money in our pockets or lose money, however it turns out. But a corporation is a creation of government, a legal entity, you know. So, you know, I understand the rationale. You know, I think it's a good thing we have corporations. You know, that was very important in building up a modern economy. But don't tell me that you don't want the government, but you want corporations. Those are creations of the government. It's, a, it's amazing how that gets lost, how very simple points like that get lost, or the nature of, you know, how do you, uh, how do you enforce a contract? I mean, you're going to, eventually, you need to have, you may need to go to court, and, you know, the government right. has to arbitrate, and on and on and on. There's a long list. So, first of all, this opposition, if I may say so, uh, between the government and the free market is itself preposterous, despite the fact that it's so commonly used as a political, uh, as a device for, for, for gaining for political ends. 
it's very effective for conservatives, and that's why it's so frustrating for me when I ha when we have our friends, progressives, accepting that rationale, that story, because you know, on the face of it, you know, we all have had bad experience with government. So you know, you know, option one is, you know, look, we'll just uh, let leave things themselves, see what happens, take it or leave it. You know, option two, the government bureaucrat comes in and messes everything up. Well, option one sounds pretty attractive at first, you know, at first glance. Right. So I think it's really important to point out there is no option one here. <laughs> okay. So in your book, let me just mention to our listeners, uh, we're talking to Dean Baker from the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, who's written a book called The Conservative and Anti-State, How the Wealthy Use the Government to Stay Rich and Get Richer. There's also a website associated with it. If I remember correctly, it's just conservative and anti-state. State.org, or is it the conservative? I've no, forgotten. Conservative nanny state. Conservative Let me also point out that people are welcome. They could just download the book for free. You could buy a paperback. I think it's seven dollars. Good, and uh, that's in fact I have a printed out copy right in front of me. <laughs> yeah. So well, that's. I uh, encourage people. That's no, no one should feel any guilt about just downloading and printing it out. Actually. And we link to that in the left out that info webpage as usual whenever we have our guests. So your book is very. Uh, oh, go, go ahead, Danny. Uh, oh, if you want to give us a call. Uh, the phone number is 412-268-9728. Right, and we're not having electronic mail today for silly technical reasons. Okay, so back to uh, Dean, uh, Dean Beggar. Uh, so the, uh, your book is very nicely structured by a number of topics, that all of which at one time or another have annoyed the heck out of me. So I will, I will uh, maybe go through them. So your first one talks about the uh, is one that's a subject of interest nationally, but also particularly here at Carnegie Mellon University, we've often talked about uh, outsourcing and the influence of the uh, of uh, free trade and so on on jobs and creation of jobs and in your chapter one is called doctors and dishwashers how the nanny state creates good jobs for those at the top so i wonder if you could maybe take that yeah the, the conventional <clears throat> story that you get on on trade and that's really what the chapter is about is that you know you have people who've lost in the global economy and people stand out here certainly are manufacturing workers out there and steel workers being a prime example. Yeah, that would be an example, yeah. And, and then you have the winners, you know, the high-tech people, you know, I think of Thomas Friedman is a real smart guy writing his columns for the New York Times, you know, they're, you know, they're the winners. They got the skills to compete in the global economy. So the story that they have is, you know, well, the losers are just going to have to figure out how they could, you know, get the skills that they need, you know. And the main point I make there is, no, it wasn't just that, you know, Thomas Friedman's a smart guy, I'm sure he is, but it's not just that, you know, some people have skills and others don't. The point was that we structured trade in a very specific way. What we did was we designed trade agreements that would make it as easy as possible for our corporations to manufacture goods in the developing world, or for that matter, other corporations to manufacture goods in the developing world and ship them back to the United States, directly putting our manufacturing workers in competition. But we could have, you know, we sit down, we're designing the trade agreements. These didn't just happen. So we could design trade agreements and said, look, there's lots of really bright people in Mexico and India and China, wherever it might be. Why don't we figure out how we could, you know, structure their education system or let them structure it themselves so that these people could be trained as doctors, lawyers, uh, professors, economists, whatever it might be, and come and compete with our doctors and lawyers and give us much lower cost medical services, legal services, accounting services on down the list. Well, our doctors and lawyers, for the most part, don't have to compete with people from India and Mexico who would be willing to work for much lower wages because we have all sorts of barriers. We did not design our trade agreements that way. So it's not just that these people are hardworking and smart. I'm sure they are, but plenty of steel workers that lost their job were also hardworking and smart. But the fact is that the rules were rigged against the steel workers. The rules were rigged that favors the doctors and lawyers. So uh, Danny and I, Danny, I know we'll want to pick up on this. Uh, Danny and I had a disagreement about uh, what your meaning on this chapter was. So maybe Danny wants to pick that well, up. Well, first of all, I, I, I don't, mm. you know, of course, Bob and I are both professors, and you're an economist, so you're basically, you know, your argument is, is against yourself, and uh, which is which is fine. That's that's, that's uh, admirable of you to do that. Uh, but but I don't. The thing I don't like about it. Two things I don't like about it. One is, I don't think I don't accept free trade. First of all. As, as, as a universally, you know, thing to be admired and thing to be, you know, to be, to be unconditionally, you know, uh, accelerated. Uh, I don't think a race to the bottom is good in, in the case of professors or in the case of steel workers. I think that whole concept of a race to the bottom is a bad, a bad thing to do for everybody. So I don't, I don't like your proposal that says, well, we, well, a race to the bottom of steel workers is good, so we should also have a race to the bottom of doctors, lawyers, and, and professors. I don't think that, I don't accept, you know, that at all. All right, well, let me make a couple points on it. First off, I think it's really important to understand that the people who won won because we rigged the rules that way. Good. 
So, so whenever, you know, I don't know how many people, like, they feel a need to say, oh, I'm for free trade, but it has to be this, this, that, and that. Robert Rubin, George W. Bush, you know, pick all the people designing trade policy. They are protectionists, you know, but they want to protect the doctors, the lawyers. Now, now maybe you want to, too, but, but the point is that they don't have the right to call themselves free traders because they don't support free trade. They only want to put our manufacturing workers in competition. You know, other people also, but they want to protect those on top. Now, the second point in terms of, you know, what we actually do vis-a-vis -vis the doctors and lawyers, um, they are big winners. I don't mind seeing them put in competition, you know, because we are going to have to lower their wages, you know, those at the top end. Uh, I don't know about professors, maybe a little bit, but uh, probably not as much as doctors and lawyers. But the fact is doctors and lawyers were big winners, not every, every one of them, and many of them are very good, hardworking people, and many of them are committed to what they do. There's doctors that serve inner city areas and very often get not very high pay for it and put in many long hours. So, you know, I don't particularly want to beat those people up, but you do have doctors that make three, four, five hundred thousand a year, and that's that's uh, an awful lot of money. And, you know, they're not doing it because uh, they're, they've succeeded in the global economy. They're doing it because they don't have to compete the yeah. way that, that manufacturing workers I think there are a lot of other mechanisms that, that cause the, these prices of the pay scale of doctors to be very high. And besides just the lack of of Mexicans and other other immigrants allowed to come in. I think there are a lot of Americans who, I think the system has is, is got the you know blocks in it that prevent people from doing it. I I don't know how it all works, but I would be willing to bet that there are lots and lots of barriers that restrict the flow of doctors, even from you know even the United States. Oh, so. absolutely. We we they they decide how many people go to med school. If you don't go to yeah. med school, you can't become a doctor. Right. So, so so no, there's all sorts of barriers within the United States. Same same with law. I mean, you know, the the bar associations control who gets to be a lawyer, and you know they're pretty open about that. You have states like California where they flunk close to half the people who take the bar, and it's not because the half that flunk are incompetent. They just want to draw a line high enough to restrict the number of people that get you know get admitted to compete with them. Right. So uh, so the part where I was agreeing with you when Danny and I were arguing about this yesterday was just the rhetorical point, which I think is very important to make, which is, you know, this myth that it's somehow, oh, well, poor poor people, you know, they just can't compete in the free market when it's just baloney. I mean, there there, right. there, isn't, there is no free market. Yeah, I totally, free totally agree are, with that. It's a great argument. It's just also a question of what the, uh, what the right solution is. And then I agree with Danny, actually, that this universal, like, especially now, I mean, we seem to have this idea that, you know, NAFTA, CAFTA, whatever comes next, you know, they were talking about doing some sort of free trade agreement with Jordan, if I remember correctly, the other day. That yeah, I they have one. Yeah, I mean, it's a totally amazing, right? And then, and then, not to mention that, but Halliburton then moves to Dubai. You know, at some point, uh, maybe we can uh, uh, get to that at some point later. <laughs> I'll start on a big rant about that. Um, okay, so another thing uh, uh, has to do with uh, that you mentioned is, uh, well, the, uh, the again, something, a topic of very uh, constant and recurring interest is the high CEO pay and uh, how that all is supposed to work. Because as we well know, you know, the story is, of course, you know, they aren't. I mean, people like, uh, I've forgotten the guy's Eisner. name, the, the head or the head of, Michael uh, Eisner. Uh, of Home Depot who uh, oh, you know, walked off with a couple hundred million dollars yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for well, driving for driving the co company practically into the ground. Yeah, you know, the, the <clears throat> conventional story, of course, again, is market determination. These guys are supposed to be hugely productive. You know, if they make the right decision, they can make a company billions of dollars in profits, you know, make it more efficient, this and that. You know, so it's supposed to be worth it, you know, to, to get a good CEO. And obviously it makes a difference because the guy, you know, the example of Home Depot, he was running it into the ground. <laughs> unfortunately, he still walked away with hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, the point I make here is that, uh, well, a couple points. One is that um, we... You know, CEOs have always been well compensated, um, but their pay has just gone through the roof. And you're very, very hard-pressed to make the story that somehow today's CEOs are so much more productive than the CEOs of 20 or 30 years ago. And you could also compare them to the CEOs of foreign corporations. You know, you have a company like Toyota, the most successful auto company, one of the most successful companies in the world. Well, their CEO does nicely, but he gets a few million dollars a year. He doesn't get 30, 40, 50, 100 million. You know, so and that's true across the board. If you look at Japanese, European companies, they just don't get the same sorts of pay as U.S. CEOs. But but don't they deserve it? I mean, isn't that what it takes to get the required talent? Well, again, here's here's what I go. Is, you know, I say, okay, well, how is it that they get paid so high? Well, basically, it's an insider deal. Who determines their pay? Well, the corporate boards determine their pay. Who gets on the corporate boards? Well, usually people who are buddies with the CEO. So I always say, it's, you know, it's like if you know our friends got together and they were going to decide what we got paid, and they were sitting on this huge vat of money, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in some cases, well, they'd probably pay us pretty well, you know, and that's basically what's going on here. 
And the point I make, this gets back to what I was saying earlier about corporations are created by the state. Corporations, the, the government has all sorts of rules on corporate governance that protect shareholders that you know have certain requirements about how uh, corporate boards are elected. And basically those rules are now being abused. Uh, we didn't have CEOs getting these outlandish salaries 30 or 40 years ago. We do today. So I say, you know, let's just change the rules a bit. You know, suppose you had compensation packages had to come up for a vote of the shareholders every, you know, mm. three years or five years. You know, my guess is we probably have fewer CEOs that would get $100 million pay. Also, I should say, when you send when you send uh, a vote out to the shareholders, you should have a fair vote as it stands now. The default vote. is in favor of management? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's almost impossible. Over to the we have, uh, if I may interrupt, sorry, Dean, uh, we have a caller on the line named Fred who is calling for Dean Baker. Fred, you go ahead. Hi, how you doing? Good. Thanks for calling. Left out. Okay. Uh, you have a maximum wage, I don't know, let's say a million dollars, which gets scaled to inflation, I'm just using that as a number, then, you know, you're in a fair place. You have a fair top end, you have a fair low end. So, Dean, I wonder if you yeah. want, want to come so, in. Th thanks for the call, Thank Fred. you, Fred, for the call. Um, well, I have to say, Thank you. Go ahead. it doesn't bother me trying to restrict high-end pay, because, you know, the fact is I don't think there's many people that deserve, or any people that deserve, you know, when you get really outrageous uh, pay packages. But, you know, as, as a practical matter, I just think it'd be fairly hard to literally restrict someone's pay. So I'd rather focus on the institutional structures that allow people to get really high pay. You know, I was just saying a moment ago with CEO pay, well, if all the shareholders were voting on, uh, on their pay, my guess is they wouldn't be walking away with huge salaries. But as a practical matter, I mean, you know, one of the things I've come to appreciate, having argued with a lot of right-wingers at different points, is that, you know, people game rules the game the tax code and you know suppose we said you know uh eisner whoever we want to put down there can't get more than five million a year well they'll put down that they get you know less than five million but they'll have money coming to them through many different channels now maybe we'd be able to crack down on that but it's just it just strikes me as very very hard i think it makes much more sense to try to change the institutional structures so that you don't have people getting exorbitant paychecks yeah so so um yeah, I, 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 well, I mean, I guess you could tax, I see, what you're saying is if we tax people at the higher percentage that they used to do back in the 60s, I think the tax rate was up to 90% uh, eventually, if you, it, mm -hmm. asymptotically, if you reached the super high salaries. But I guess what you're saying is that that's not really going to solve it because for the same reason they're going to get stock options or some other loopholes or something. Well, you know, again, I'm not going to argue against having a higher tax rate than we do today. I mean, you know, we had a tax rate of, uh, you know, 39.6% for the upper-income people under Clinton. You know, certainly no problem with getting to there and maybe somewhat higher. But, you know, I think almost anyone will tell you back when we had the 90% tax rate that almost no one was actually paying that because there were so many loopholes. Yeah. You know, it's... it's you know, it's... You give people a really good incentive to get around something, they often will. So... You know, as much as possible, I'd rather not create structures that, you know, people are likely... You don't want laws that you know mm -hmm. people aren't going to follow. Yeah, I, I have a, just a comment on this. This is another part of the whole mythology, and this... I don't know if your book touches on this, but just the notion that you need to offer somebody such a, an insane amount of money to get them to perform. That whole notion, to me, is just nonsense. I, no, it's, it's just it's a I mean, lie. People know, aren't people, motivated like that. When people say that, you know, you, you need to give them that, you go, well, what else exactly were they going to do? You know, I mean, they, you, know, you know, they go, we have to give them lots of money. You go, oh, so, so what was their next option? Were they going to work as a dishwasher? You know, yeah, I mean, you it's, know, it's so, preposterous. So if, if they can't get, you know, $30 million by working as a CEO, they can only get one or two or $3 million. I, don't, I don't understand, you know. And, in fact, as a practical matter, if we really value their talents, well, you give someone $50 million by the time they're 50, well, what do a lot of these people do? What's Bill Gates doing? He's retiring next year. In fact, it's the opposite, because one of the things that happens in corporations is this, again, not maybe it's off topic, but I'll just mention it, is that once somebody gets such a good retirement package of $100 million range, uh, they can then just have a short-term goal of you know, getting that bonus and getting out. Mm -hmm. 
That's right. So that's their whole that's their life the goal. Once you've done that, interest, yeah. two or three years, you've jacked up the price with a lie like Enron did, and yep. now you're going to get out with your $100 million, you know. Like Lou Pie. <laughs> <laughs> he was the one guy from Enron who got away with the whole thing. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. He became well, the largest land landowner in the state of Colorado, apparently after uh, before the uh, after the uh, he got out of Enron before the big collapse. Why don't we talk about a few okay? Other so topics. we have a few. Uh, let me topics. mention again uh, that we're talking to Dean Baker uh, from the Center for Economic and Policy Research, who's written a very interesting new book called "The Conservative Nanny State: How the Wealthy Use the Government to Stay Rich and Get Richer." Uh, and uh, listeners, as ever, are, are welcome to call us at four one two two six eight nine seven two eight. But unfortunately, no electronic mail today. I think so Danny, you two have other, just two other topic. topics which yeah. I'd like to hit on before before Dean has to go. More. Okay. Um, one was the um, the whole issue of copyright and patent, which I think he very you know eloquently analyzed, especially regarding the drug industry. And, and the other topic was the torts and takings. Oh chapter. yeah, I would, both of those, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe you could just talk very briefly about the some of the issues that come up with the cop, the patent, and, and the, the claims of drug research uh, funding and so on that that go go on. Okay, well, you know, again, patents is a great example where you know, people talk about you know, patents as though this is something that, you know, just came to us from nature as a gift of God or whatever. And of course, a patent is a creation of the government. It's a, it's a government-granted monopoly that says that, you know, if you're Pfizer or Merck or whoever you own a patent on a drug, they're going to arrest anyone that produces that drug. So it, that's how you get lots of money. And it's important to understand, you know, as we have this debate over, you know, the Medicare drug benefit or, you know, drugs in developing countries, drugs are cheap. You know, Walmart's selling them for $4 a prescription. I usually don't uh, go out and praise Walmart, but in this case I will. They're selling them $4 a prescription. The reason they could do this, you know, generic drugs are very cheap. The ones that are very expensive, it's not that they're expensive to produce. They're expensive because Pfizer or Merck or someone has a monopoly on them. And they're like, you need them for your life or your health. And if there's any way you could afford them, of course, you'll pay that price. But, Dean, you need that, that money for the funding of new research, of course. Yeah, exactly. So the point I make in the book is, well, one way we could support, we could finance drug research is by patent support. So what that means is that, you know, if you develop something, we give you the monopoly on it, and then you can charge whatever you feel like. What I say is, well, that's one way to do it. That's actually a very, very inefficient way we could do, and we actually do do, we could just pay for it directly up front. The government spends $30 billion a year financing biomedical research at the National Institutes of Health, and the pharmaceutical industry tells us that that's great stuff because they keep going out lobbying for more. So what I say is most of the research that we're paying for with the government dollar is basic research, but why don't we just have them actually develop the drugs? You know, I've had this argument with people from, from the industry, and they go, oh, they couldn't possibly do that. I go, I don't quite understand. So they do this great job doing the basic research, but then if we tell them to actually work on developing a drug and doing the clinical testing, they become morons. <laughs> you know, so, so suppose we had them actually, we paid them to actually develop the drugs, and then we let all the new drugs be sold as generics. We could get them all for 4 bucks a prescription. So, so yeah. I, I, I just want to mention some statistics that you mentioned in, in the chapter, which I thought were really powerful in selling this case. Uh, you talk about the amount of money we pay, uh, $220 billion, $220 billion uh, for the annual bill for prescription drugs, um, whereas it would be, uh, that's how much, it would be a fraction of that. But at $220 billion, uh, they're only spending actually $40 billion on research, right? That's right. So and we're that, already that, paying five times the research cost. And, and it gets even worse because roughly two-thirds of the money they spend on research is researching copycat drugs. Yes, that's right. Go ahead, please. Yeah. So, yeah, so, and, and well, we talked about this on a previous program. That's right. A few weeks ago, we talked about the Bayh-Dole Act and uh, an article in uh, Fortune magazine by a man named... Uh, Clifford uh, Cliff, Leaf. Clifford Leaf, yeah, exactly. It was a very, very interesting article on this topic on a previous edition of Left Out. Anyways, anyway, so you were picking yeah. up. Go ahead, Dean. Yeah, so I was just saying that it would be, we could, you know, you'd have to have some story about government-financed research being incredibly inefficient because, you know, as it is, we're paying, uh, you know, somewhere close to an extra $200 billion a year in higher drug prices because of patent protection, and what the industry is giving us is somewhere in the order of $13, $14 billion a year in innovative research into innovative drugs. So, you know, if instead we just spent the money directly and then let all the drugs be sold by Walmart at $4 a prescription, you know, we would almost certainly end up as huge gainers, and we also wouldn't have the situation where you have people that, you know, can't get drugs they need for their health or their life, both in the U.S. and even bigger problem in the developing world. Yeah, so another big problem is that they develop it, they take a drug they already have a patent on, and they, they try to find another use for it. 
So they do clinical trials on a, a heart medicine that's now maybe they claim it's used for, for acne or for <laughs> what grows hair. So they prove that it has a one-tenth of one percent uh, <laughs> effect in growing hair. They issue a new patent on the same old drug. Of course, that research, that quote, research, unquote, is very expensive, <laughs> huge clinical trials. And that, then they get, then that, that allows them to extend the monopoly even longer. So that's, that's just right. another example of the garbage that, that goes on. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, there's endless gaming in the system. Again, it's one of the things that's frustrating me as an economist because I'm always, uh, you know, you know, we were talking about trade a moment ago, and you get economists when, when, you know, one thing they almost all agree on is, you know, if we have a tariff, say, you know, President Bush put a 30% tariff on steel, actually as a maximum, most of them were much less. But a few years back, he put 30% tariffs on steel. Obviously, he's trying to get votes from people out there. But uh, you mm -hmm. know, all the economists were jumping up and down and going, oh, this is such an outrage. And then I go, okay, but you know, with prescription drugs, basically, you know, the patents operate the same way as the tariff, except instead of being 30%, they're you know, maybe 1,000%, maybe 5,000%, because these drugs would sell for 4 bucks mm -hmm. a prescription. Instead, they're selling for you know, 500 a prescription. It's amazing, isn't it? It's, uh, you tell people this, and I think a lot of times they don't even think you're, that it's true. <laughs> yeah, no, they find it hard to believe. That's why Walmart did do us a public service. You know, there they were selling all these drugs for dollars a prescription. Yes, that's quite true. So, again, talking to uh, Dean Baker here uh, about the conservative nanny state. Now, another topic that uh, Danny and I found both, uh, I think, enjoyed with great relish, a uh, chapter in your book, uh, which is uh, the chapter on called The Rigged Legal Deck, Torts and Takings, The Nanny State Only Gives. And I particularly love your perspective on this, so I wondered if you might uh, summarize it for us. Yeah, uh, these are two separate legal issues where, you know, the conservatives have been out there complaining about all these legal abuses. And, you know, in the case of torts, they have these stories that, you know, we need tort reform because there's all these, you know, nuisance lawsuits. And, you know, the example that, that's always cited is this woman who sued McDonald's because she burned herself with coffee right. and supposedly got, you know, four or $4 million. Uh, the, the reality of it was an older woman, and uh, she did burn herself. And... This has been an issue with McDonald's for years because they had superheated their coffee. This is a way they discovered they could save a few cents on, you know, on, on their coffee, that they could get a very cheap brand of coffee superheated and no one could taste how bad it was. And you know, <laughs> that way they saved a few cents. And they've had a number of people who had complained about being burned because it wasn't just normal. We all expect our coffee to be hot, but this is superheated. So this woman was an older woman and was badly burnt, and what she actually ended up with was somewhere around 150, 200,000. But this was, you know, supposed to be this big scandal. She had third-degree burns, so she actually went to the hospital. And was very serious. But the point I make there is this is actually, you know, exactly what you want to happen in the law because she got punitive damages, and the reason for that is that she was doing a public service. She sued McDonald's. McDonald's had to pay several hundred thousand dollars, not just her hospital bill, which you know, a few thousand, whatever that might have been. And as a result of that, McDonald's changed the practice. They stopped serving superheated coffee. So, in effect, the legal system did exactly what we wanted it to do. What it did mm -hmm. was it gave this woman an incentive to take the time, spend the money to file a suit against McDonald's, and as a result of that, they no longer serve superheated coffee. So instead of being an abuse of the system, that's what you wanted to have happen. Funny how you never hear that version of the story. No, it is remarkable. I mean, no one really disputes the facts if you look through the case. I mean, it's, you know, it's clear enough what happened in the case. So, um, so, so that, was, that, that, that was the case with tort reform. So, again, you know, my, my point here is that, you know, very often uh, when people are suing and you hear about punitive damages, they are doing a public service. And I don't mean to defend every verdict. Of course, some verdicts are crazy and this and that. But, you know, the point is those are exceptions. And furthermore, you know, in, in fact, you know, usually our judges aren't nuts. If there's a crazy verdict, the judge can overturn it, and they often do. So, you know, this idea that you have all these corporations just paying ridiculous fees, ridiculous settlements, it, it really, I won't say it never happens, but, but it's, it, it's pretty rare. But the thing is that the, the whole, you need to look at this, mm -hmm. this, this system in a more coherent way, a more sort of statistical way to see its general effect, rather than picking out one weird case and somehow building an entire redesigning their scrapping a whole system based on one case even if there were a ridiculous case as you said yeah that doesn't mean we should scrap the whole system you need to look at the you know the, the way it's working and what is the good that it's doing absolutely and as i say the great irony is that the case that was their poster child actually turns out to be the opposite it's yeah. it really it's, it's what you want you know? yeah that's we interesting gave this woman an incentive to you know basically get mcdonald's to, to get its house in order reminds me of the case where they tried to find a farmer who had been uh, uh, gone bankrupt because of the estate tax. Mm. They couldn't find one. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, that was a great story. 
and the Republicans still go out and talk about that. That's amazing. Uh, so the other the other uh, aspect of this was the idea of takings, which has been, gained a lot of currency in the last few years. I believe that there were referenda on the ballot in the last election, in the last couple of elections. Uh, it's a it's a topic that the the right wing uh, wing nuts on on uh, conservative talk radio in particular love to uh, go on and on about. So I wondered if you could fill us in on what the issue is and what the what the real story is. Yeah, takings most often comes up, or at least as a political issue, comes up in the context of environmental regulations. So right, have, exactly. First of all, thank you very much. Uh, good, yes, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so the, the classic story goes that, you know, someone has plans to develop their land or they want to, you know, build onto their home, and it turns out that this is a wetland or it's a nesting area for, you know, an endangered species or something. So well, they're, they're building it for their, for their blind mother-in-law who's dying. In, invariably. You know, so, so so what happens is then these people run out. What about property rights? You know, the government should have to compensate me, and you know that it, it's not fair that uh, they could just tell me I can't use my land as I want. And the point I make in the book is well, a couple points. One is that you know, first off, if if we're going to literally have people run into court every time the government does something that affects the value of their land, they'd be in court all the time. You know, because the government's doing things that affect the value of the land all the time. But the more important point is that this goes both ways. The government all the time takes actions that increases the value of your property. Suppose that you have some rural farmland that's in the middle of North Dakota and it's miles from any regular road and even further from the highway. Well, the wheat you grow on your land isn't going to be worth very much because it's very expensive to get it to, to anyone who could buy it. So the government builds roads. It's easier to get your, your wheat to the market. Well, you don't have to... You don't have to pay anything for this giving, you know, the, the, the increase in value of your property. So why is it that you expect the government to, to pay you when it does something that decreases the value of your property? So the point I'm making here is that, you know, there should be some symmetry. And, you know, the way the courts have generally interpreted this, and there's actually, you know, uh, Robert Posner is actually a conservative Republican. He wrote, you know, to my knowledge, at least the classic work on this. He said, let's get this stuff out of the court. If, you know, if the government takes your land, then, of course, they have to compensate you or does something that's close to, you know, full taking of the land. But we don't want people running into the court all the time saying, oh, they reduced the value of my property by, you know, 3 percent, 5 percent, 10 percent. Similarly, we don't expect these people to be giving money to the government every time the government does something that increases the value of their land. And, you know, if we want to be tough, you know, individualist, well, when you buy your land, you know there's a possibility that, you know, maybe there's an endangered species that nests there. Maybe there's, you know, there's going to be some regulation. Smart people know that. So, you know, you should have taken it should that be priced in. Yeah, yeah, you should yeah. Price it and, in, and often, in fact, it is. So it's not just this isn't just hypothetical. <clears throat> you know, people know. You know, if you you know, suppose you're you're living in uh, an area that's uh, near an area that's been zoned for the airport. Well, you could probably get that land much cheaper because everyone knows an airport's going to be built nearby. Right. Yep, this is, uh, this is uh, very well put, Dean Baker. I really appreciate that uh, very much. It is interesting how it's a ratchet. You know, it only works one direction. Uh, when it's, uh, when it uh, tends to reduce property values, oh, well, that's a, that's a heinous crime. When it increases property values, they're only getting what they deserve. So <laughs> it's a very... Yeah, it's because they were so smart. It's because it's they were so smart. It's amazing. Like, if you look at the history, and I'm sure you know it well, the history, one thing that pops into my head is the history of the railroad uh, in, in, in the U.S., right, building the transcontinental. Railroad. I was reading about that not very long ago, a few years ago. You know, and this was just an enormous government giveaway. And actually, I think is the right thing to do. But people forget about all of this, right? All of this value was created by government action, and uh, it's amazing how it can get turned around into, uh, you know, the intrusions on the mythical free market. Uh, so there's uh, quite a number of other uh, topics uh, in your book. I know that you're probably a little bit short on time, so I wondered whether you might like to summarize. There's uh, quite a lot of critique here, but I wonder what's the, uh, the punchline, you might say, of your book. Well, the punchline is that I really think we have to reexamine how, you know, liberals, progressives, and conservatives view the market and view the government. And, you know, the point here is that, you know, we both, both want the market, they want the market. They want the government to structure the market in ways that distribute income upward. We want the government to structure markets and to act in ways that ensure a decent standard of living. 
Okay, good. Uh, so I think we'll uh, we'll uh, leave it at there. Leave it there. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dean Baker. He's an uh, economist for the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington. Written a book called The Conservative Nanny State: How the Wealthy Use the Government to Stay Rich and Get Richer. You can actually download the entire book if you like. It's on conservative conservativenannystate.org, all in one word. Uh, and I recommend you do it. We link to that from the Left Out webpage. And uh, thank you very much, Dean Baker, for being a guest on Left Out. It was very enjoyable having you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. All right, we will uh, we will take a uh, brief uh, musical break, and uh, we'll be back in a few minutes' time uh, to for the rest of Left Out. Welcome back to Left Out on WRCT 88.3. That musical interlude was uh, Nathan Milstein playing the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. Beautiful piece of music. So welcome back to Left Out. As ever, listeners are welcome to call us at 412-268-9728, but no electronic mail today. We're, uh, we don't have that set up. So we were uh, earlier in the program talking with Dean Baker, an economist from the uh, Center for Economic and Policy Research, and I have uh, I have uh, I recommend that you uh, have a look at the uh, at their website, uh, Conservative Nanny State. It's a very interesting analysis of a lot of the rubbish that, uh, in my opinion, that we hear uh, on the uh, on the uh, uh, in the public airwaves about uh, the market versus the government. When in fact, the real story is uh, what is the appropriate balancing considerations and the role for government, not what whether there ought to be one, because in actual fact, that's a given. And uh, and so it's really just uh, what role would you like to have? Would you like it to uh, have some uh, influence on bettering your life, or would you like it to have influence solely on bettering, let's say, oh, I don't know, Dick Cheney's life? How about uh, that would be, uh, that's the kind of uh, choices we face these days with uh, Republicans in particular. I think it's gotten absolutely out of hand. I mean, now... Mm-hmm. We were Danny and I were remarking the other day, the uh, the shamelessness with which uh, the uh, the uh, Republicans now pursue their true economic ends, and there's a number of manifestations of that. One, as I alluded to earlier, was uh, the Halliburton uh, uh, announcement this week. They're moving their headquarters to Dubai. So this is a company that's received by now, it must be a trillion dollars in no-bid contracts in Iraq, most of which have been squandered, money gone down the drain, uh, uh, abused at an outrageous extent. And now they don't even want to pay. They probably, I should check on this, they probably don't already don't manage to not pay very much, if any, U.S. Uh, corporate income taxes because they already were masters as a result of the action of Dick Cheney uh, of using uh, offshoring, of having their assets offshored in uh, you know, Cayman Islands or places like that. I don't know exactly. Uh, and now they're going to move the whole corporation to Dubai. So now here's a question. You asked me a very good question yesterday about, uh, for example, government grants mm-hmm. you might want to yeah, pick up. Yeah, right. If, if, <clears throat> if, if you get a government grant like an NSF grant, um, They'll pay for you to fly to foreign conferences, but you have to use a U.S. carrier. Right. If you ever, if you ever fly, for example, if you attend a conference, let's say you work, you have an NIH grant. Maybe if you're a physician or medical researcher or a National Science Foundation grant, uh, as Danny and I have or have had. Um, if you want to go to a conference, let's say that happens to be in London, maybe. It, yeah. You know, maybe last year it was in Los Angeles. This year it's in London. It varies. 
then uh, you have to take a U.S. carrier. Uh, you're only allowed to, the only way to fly there. Well, for something like London, that's actually pretty easy to do, and it's not a, it's not really an imposition well, it, at all. It, to me, it's not a big deal. That no, they it's do not this. a big it's deal. Not, at it's all. not a. I, I don't. But but I mean. But but. But that only applies to you and me. But, that right, applies to, to our us, our five hundred bucks or seven hundred fifty right. bucks that we spend on going on a flight right. to London. But when it comes to to to, to buy seven hundred fifty million or yeah, billion billion dollar contract, well, then, then uh, no problem. Then it's okay to do it to a foreign uh, yeah. a foreign country. So apparently. you would think that the same rule would apply. To, you now uh, you would imagine that since uh, Halliburton is now or shortly to be a foreign company, uh, that we would no longer be giving them no bid contracts. I mean, why should we be uh, subsidizing uh, the Dubai uh, country a company in Dubai? I don't, I don't understand why we're doing this. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but for some reason, uh, we are or shortly will be uh, paying them off. Well, so just, that's one example. Yeah, it just seems to be the with Halliburton, their mm-hmm. reputation is so so bad. I guess maybe they're just they've decided that they can't mm-hmm. go any lower in public esteem. So why, why continue to pay taxes that's at all? That's part of it. But they I also, mean, they, you know, if you look at the attitude of Bush and Cheney, they just don't they just don't give a damn. I mean, that's really the bottom line. Yeah, they don't they don't. This is their due. This is their due. And uh, and this is the thing that I think the people of America have to wake up to is that what a load of phony phoniness. The reason I like having Dean Baker on is because he has a particular ec- economist view on exposing some of this phoniness. But the phoniness is everywhere uh, about the way uh, in which these people behave with respect to uh, the market and their particular entitlements and their welfare programs. I mean, Dick Cheney practically ran Halliburton into the ground with his incompetence. The only thing that saved them were all these no-bid contracts right. because of the invasion of Iraq. It's uh, quite incredible. Well, there's plenty of other evidence for uh, for the this kind of uh, shamelessness. Uh, for example, we're seeing very quickly now. I actually, I must say, I find it rather amusing the way in which the Republicans are uh, are are desperately uh, they're going to bail at the first opportunity on all of their uh, on all their family values nonsense. When because uh, the story isn't working, because who are they going to be their nominees? Rudy Giuliani, uh, John McCain. Uh, Mitt oh Romney. no, he bought the he, he kissed the ring as you said. <laughs> That's true. Do, 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 he's do, trying to kiss the ring, and he's also 30 points behind. Yeah. <laughs> Newt Gingrich uh, is going to be their star. It looks like they're trying to set him up. So you see that immediately uh, it's really of uh, all these morality issues and restoring morality uh, is uh, rather become rather minimal when it comes to money, okay, which is what they're actually concerned about, money for the right people in the right sort and for kicking the money upstairs to the wealthy who deserve it and to restoring oligarchy or instances instituting oligarchy in the United States. Uh, but who so are they the going to nominate? Sorts of people. Well, it's a really good question. I don't actually care because they're toast no matter what, I think. But it's uh, quite amusing to watch them uh, uh, fawn all over despicable slimes like yeah. Newt Gingrich. Yeah. Okay. Or who was Rudy having an affair. Who was, who was having an affair. We at could the exact go on. Same time that he was we could go on. lambasting Clinton during the impeachment. I know it's quite it's quite uh, quite incredible. But of course, you see, he's a he's a member of the moral majority. So it's uh, it's really uh, it's really in this respect, I must say, it's comical and it's uh, and it's uh, somewhat enjoyable to watch. But there are actually plenty of serious things to be concerned about. It's not uh, unfortunately, it's not just uh, watching their pratfalls uh, because their pratfalls end up uh, you know affecting us very greatly. And so I think we ha- uh, really have to pay attention to these things. Probably the biggest uh, story of the week is the uh, Gonzalez story, Danny. I wonder if you want yeah, to pick up on that. Yeah, the prosecutors, right? The the in December, the I think ten pro- or eight prosecutors <clears throat> who were fired, um, and there's been a lot of discussion of this. And then thing. it turns out some before that, and uh, oh, I didn't Mar- even know in that. Maryland yet. Oh, but year then or two ago. Paul yeah. Krugman has pointed out in his column on Friday how uh, he looked. Somebody did not him, but somebody did a statistical analysis of the prosecutors who weren't fired, of what they were actually doing, and it turns out that they've been indicting Democrats at a rate five times higher than Republicans. Oh, yes. Um, so basically the, the point is that the ones who didn't toe the line I, I got ble- fired. The ones who did continued to you know, uh, do the indictments of Democrats. I, I believe this should be known as the criminalization of liberal politics. It is. It's true. It's literally true. Yeah, it's literally true. That's yeah. literally what they're doing. Uh, you notice uh, it's it's an old adage. It's an old story, right? The the people who whine the most about a particular topic are probably the ones who are guilty of it. So the Republicans, you know, for years now have been complaining about the criminalization of conservative politics. Uh-huh. Uh, right. Whenever people like Tom DeLay or, you know, Duke Cunningham or Noe, uh, what's his name, Noe in uh, Ohio, uh-huh. 
Nay, Bob, his first Nay, name. Bob Nay. Nay in Ohio. Excuse me. Uh, pardon me. Uh, Nay, uh, Rob, right. Rob Nay or Bob Nay in Ohio. Uh, whenever these, uh, that is a criminal, it's all part of the, Tom DeLay, you see, is, is, in a, is an angel. I mean, I'm not sure if you realize that. I mean, he was, he's, a, he's a pious Christian fellow who would never do any wrong. And his prosecution is nothing other than the criminalization of conservative politics. Anyway, the, uh, the, the uh, Republicans who are complaining loudly about the criminalization of conservative politics uh, turns out to be, you know, very Cri- actively engaged cri- criminalizing in the criminalization of, uh, of, liberal, of yeah. liberal politics. And now it's uh, beginning to be exposed because, thankfully, we now have a Congress with subpoena power and oversight authority. And John Conyers, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, is uh, using that. And I urge our listeners to look at, for example, uh, tpmmuckraker.com. Uh, uh, this is a uh, sub-site, if you will, subsidiary of Talking Points Memo blog uh, Josh Marshall, uh, that is uh, looking, uh, documenting very carefully and thoroughly what's been going on. If you ha- haven't been able to keep up with it, the, the developments are rapid. Uh, they're, uh, what happened uh, today? So the main thing that's been going on is uh, the, now the doc- there was a document dump on Friday in which, you know, usually the bad news comes out at, you know, 5 p.m. on Friday. Uh, you know, Just in uh, time for the Saturday uh, morning uh, paper that nobody reads. <laughs> exactly. So in the Friday afternoon document dump, there was a bunch of documents that came out now which show that the White House uh, was intimately involved in the decisions to uh, fire these prosecutors. In particular, Harriet oh. Myers. Remember Harriet Myers? Harriet Myers, the brilliant, the brilliant right. legal scholar yeah, right. who was nominated to the Supreme Court, uh, who uh, I think she developed a nanny problem or something like this, and was her name? Her name well, was Well, they withdrew. The Republicans didn't Not like. It. She wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Never mind. Yeah. Uh, so she was known for her brilliant legal mind. She uh, turns out her idea was to can all ninety-three of the U.S. attorneys. Uh, and just replace them all with their own people. Now, uh, Gonzalez has been, well, to be, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, I would say has been lying through his teeth uh, about what has been going on over the course of quite a number of months now, but recently. And it all points directly to him. So in particular, um, uh, there there was this Myers plan. And if you look on the uh, Talking Points Memo website, uh, the attorney general, our, our esteemed attorney general, uh, uh, testified, uh, uh, wrote a letter to Chuck Schumer in which he claimed that the department is not aware Department being the Justice Department, not aware of Carl Rove playing any role in the decision to appoint Carl uh, uh, Rove's former aide Timothy Griffin to a U.S. attorney. And now they have an email in which they were talking about Gonzalez. Uh, Gonzalez's chief of staff, Kyle Sampson, says that uh, well, the getting Tim Griffin appointed was important to Harriet Carl. It's Harriet Carl, etc. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it goes on. That's just the smallest one. The smallest one. This is like the tiniest, the tiniest one. Yeah. But what is going on is that. Uh, you know they they're obviously doing this for purely political purposes. They they're doing have, it. They need to hire. They need to get some diesel-powered shredders in there. And Domenici. <laughs> well, Domenici is toast, if you ask me. They have an email in these documents which make clear Domenici's involvement in pressuring uh, Iglesias, the uh, the attorney who has actually gone public and mm-hmm. uh, uh, complaining. In New, They've New been Mexico. Telling, in uh, New Mexico, they've yeah. been talking about all sorts. Of, now, what Domenici did is quite arguably quite could very well be a crime. He has. Uh, he in fact has hired a criminal defense attorney uh he hasn't been charged yet to my knowledge uh but the the story that <laughs> who has would charge been, him that has been circulating? For the- <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be alberto gonzalez i can bet that uh so i don't know whether that will happen but it certainly seems uh that there's a the plausible case there for uh for illegal activity anyway it's something that ought to be looked into because it it has the it doesn't quite pass the smell test of honesty um and so uh, uh domenici uh is implicated heavily in the documents that are in there and so We'll be we'll be hearing more about that. I imagine uh, Conyers is going to have something to say about about that. Also with um, with uh, Harriet Myers. So apparently uh, Conyers is planning to call Harriet Myers uh, to testify, as well as all of these other characters. The Bush administration uh, looks to be uh, whipping up to uh, to be quite a scandal. Uh, it's uh, there question. are no surprises here. It's all it's totally obvious what is going on. There's no question in anyone's mind whatsoever what yeah, is going on here. Right. It is perfectly obvious. It's just a question of, you know, watching it play out. It's a bit kabuki like. But the same happened, I remember, I'm old enough to remember with uh, good old Dick Nixon, you know. It took a while for it to all play out, but boy it was awfully <laughs> obvious from yeah. square one yeah. what was going on there. But here here's a question of something that um not being a lawyer uh, or not knowing how the Justice <clears throat> Department works or is supposed to work. Um, 
So clearly the government is split into the three branches, you know, the judiciary and the, and the, the separate branch from the executive mm-hmm. and the congressional. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet there is this process by which the executive branch does appoint the prosecutors are they supposed to appoint them and then they get to be approved by they're Congress. approved by the Senate yes they have to I be see. approved by the Senate except that our the, very own Arlen Specter slipped in a last minute provision against, against no one's knowledge into the renewal of the USA Patriot Act uh, which allows them to appoint U.S. attorneys to replace without the for a period of time without conventional without uh, congressional excuse me right. congressional approval and uh, this was our own Arlen Specter senator from Pennsylvania yeah. many of our listeners if not all are our residents of Pennsylvania presume can take yeah. this into account the next yeah. time they well, vote. Well, he, he's uh, one of the people who always comes out with the right words at the right time, but then it would be never follows up never. on action, and actually taking action, does, actually calling hearings like when he was the head of the Judiciary Committee, actually voting on things and so he on. He's always making the, this, these pious-sounding words about how, how terrible things are, but then never actually doing anything and Earlier this week, he was saying, well, that they should reconsider the they should consider amending the USA Patriot Act. Well, first of all, they should consider eliminating right. the USA Patriot Act. Second of all, it's just nonsense, just hot air. It's just from Spectre's usual, usual empty rhetoric. It's uh, really, really but, very annoying. Uh, this guy is—he's su- supposedly a moderate Republican, but he is—he is—he has been nothing but a facilitator for the Bush administration's abuses, straight down the line. I can't think of a single exception to that, and the, I am myself am quite furious about it. Well, the point I was making was there's supposed to be the separation, but actually, but but then you've got the the ability to appoint. The executive can appoint the, you know, the prosecutors and also the attorney general is appointed by the president, um, which makes it superficially to look ridiculous because here we have a guy who actually is a personal friend of Bush, personal lawyer of Bush going back, I don't know, many years mm-hmm. that he would be the attorney general. That's ridiculous. Mm. Thinking about this notion of have a whole branch of government, which is set up to be different from you know, and and to balance the executive branch, and you you have the president appointing a crony to be the head of that entire branch of government. That doesn't make any sense. Well, it was the same with Harriet Myers being nominated to the Supreme Court. It was absolutely preposterous. Or uh, what's his but name? But the Congress approved it. Brown being the head of it FEMA. should just be ruled out just because of conflict of interest. Period. Yeah. He just because he's an old buddy of his. It should be it should be unacceptable on the on its face. First of all, you don't understand. He's not the president. He's the king. And the king does what he damn well pleases. And the sooner you get used to that, the better that uh, country will <laughs> yeah. the country will be. I mean, haven't you haven't you understood this by now? It's been six, more than six years since we've uh, been in the uh, the reign of uh, right. King Bush. King well, George congressional II. there has been no congressional oversight in any of this stuff. Right. Uh, well, now there now. will be. And certainly Con- uh, Conyers is, I think, going to push this very heavily. Uh, Waxman, I think we can rely on. Waxman is uh, also would be a brilliant ally. Russ Feingold uh, in the Senate. These are people are crucial figures for us, absolutely crucial figures for us. Uh, lots more to be to come. Uh, you can certainly will find out that Carl Rove was absolutely intimately involved in this. Shrub was absolutely intimately involved with this. Harry As they Myers, were both in play. All the way involved in this. Uh, Roberto Gonzalez, it's despicable manipulation of our government apparatus for political and personal gain. It is immoral, and if not, if not a crime, legally a crime. Maybe Domenici's actions seem uh, more close to that border, if you ask me. Uh, well, well, that will remain to be seen. But this is uh, really despicable, and it's uh, just completely exemplary of the way uh, the Bush administration has behaved from day one. And the sooner people realize this, the better, because the country is in serious danger from these criminals who are who have taken over and seized uh, the executive branch, who think that they are uh, that they are not accountable to anyone, mm-hmm. whatever they like. And so I think uh, people should pay close attention. Well, it is now 7 o'clock. That's the end of our hour this week. Uh, Thank you very much all for listening uh, to Left Out. Thank you to Noah for producing today's program. And we will be back again in two weeks' time. Thanks for listening.